Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. No one has called the UK housing market better than the man I'm sitting next to now. He is Fred Harrison, the renegade economist, author of Boom, Bust, House Prices, Banking and the Depression of 2010. And back in 2005, many people had turned bearish on the housing market, myself included. But Fred said and wrote that this boom had another two years to go. And in some areas, prices doubled uh, in that time. Fred, the market has turned now, uh, as you said it would. How much lower has it got to go? The decline has only just begun here in the UK and in most countries in the world. Uh, the United States had a year's advantage. It, it turned in 2006. So it's, again, well on its way down to the bottom. But, um, frankly, the UK housing market has only just begun its downward spiral. I think we're something like 15% off from, from the peak of uh, summer 2007, um, if you look at the nationwide data. Would you care to, to speculate as to how, how far that index will go from its peaks, 30 40%? Well, certainly 30%. Uh, and uh, I have to be honest and say that I don't know how far down it will go. Uh, I do believe it will exceed the 30%, but um, I would be lying if I suggested I really knew where the bottom was. And uh, this isn't the first house, housing market peak that you've called. You, you called the peak in 1989 as well. Yes. The, what you have to understand is that uh, property cycles have been with us for at least 300 years. And by looking at the empirical evidence, we see that, w that there are these cycles that uh, repeat themselves every 18 years, except when something like a civil war in the United States or a world war in Europe interrupts the flow of that business cycle pattern. Uh, so in 1983, when I completed the research I did into uh, property markets worldwide, uh, I was able to determine that since the last downturn had been in 1972, uh, it was inevitable that um, the, the following uh, 18 years would see the end of that cycle, and uh, that meant that the 1980s peak would be around 1988-89, which turned out to be the mm -hmm. case, and it logically followed that 1992 would be the year of recession and crises and so on, which it was. And so, frankly, it's not rocket science. It's uh, just adding up simple arithmetic. And so if uh, the, the recession of 92 was followed by another 18-year period, 2010 was going to be the next uh, serious uh, year of uh, economic crisis. And so in 1997, I analyzed the structure of the business cycle further and published it in a book in that year, 1997. Mm -hmm. And uh, so confident was I that Gordon Brown was, had 10 years in which to do something about the next boom bust uh, that I foolishly thought that by presenting him with my analysis, he might want to take defensive measures to secure stability in the UK economy by adopting prudent policies. He did quite the reverse, of course. He built instability into the system by default, by simply not doing anything at all to correct the structural flaws in the capitalist, the market system. Uh, it was a dead cert that the end of the housing cycle would, in the UK would be at the end of 2007 or the beginning of 2008. And sure enough, house prices did start to turn down to weaken in uh, October of 2007 in some of our regions. And, of course, we now know uh, the outcome. It's uh, a toboggan ride down. You wrote to Gordon Brown, and uh, he didn't uh, heed your advice. Do you think he ever actually saw what you'd written? 
He didn't write back and say, thank you, Mr. Harrison, uh, go take a running jump. I mean, do you think he's aware of your work, or do you think he's kind of, he has so many people sitting, you know, in front of him protecting his inbox, as it were? The answer is, when you're in politics and you're a government minister, you are responsible for what happens in your department. In the Treasury, he was the man in control. We know that he has a reputation for being a control freak. Mm -hmm. Now... Some years later, and well before 2007, I sat in the meeting room off his office in the Treasury addressing one of his closest advisers uh, and explained the facts to her. She's now in the House of Lords. And if she didn't turn around and go and talk to the boss, well, that's the boss's fault. So I can't, with hand on heart, say... He knows exactly what I wrote, mm-hmm. but he is responsible nonetheless if he didn't, doesn't know. So I hold him culpable personally for the outcome of Treasury policies over that period. And I understand you wrote to Nigel Lawson in 1988 as well with, with similar, similar suggestions. Uh, my book, uh, Powering the Land, was published in 1983. It coincided with an election and Thatcher... Um, made the headlines just as that book was published but sure enough uh, I made it my business because I was naive in the 1980s I thought the politicians really did want to do the best for the country that they were elected to represent so sure I then supplied Lawson and then subsequently Lamont uh, with the evidence but again uh, they were fixated on protecting the homeowner their constituency as they see it uh, and the idea of the kind of policy reforms that are needed to prevent these boom busts uh, were and I presume still are um, unacceptable to politicians Uh, but they have to be held to account because the reciprocal of not taking action is what we're seeing in the markets today back in the early 90s Tens or hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs and their homes. That's the consequence of politicians fearing the reforms that would eliminate the boom-bust cycle. So uh, we need to hold them accountable. They have to justify why they think it's acceptable to sacrifice all those people's homes and jobs just in order not to take the remedial measures during the good times. I would imagine that they don't want to take those measures during the good times because they don't want to lose their good times popularity that they're enjoying. So you've got this kind of very short-termist view from politicians. Do you think that's a modern phenomenon or do you think it goes back hundreds of years? Well, uh, we're in the age of democracy where politicians do rely on a popular vote rather than pulling strings uh, in court uh, or, or through the military uh, in uh, the, the previous kind of uh, mm-hmm. social systems. So in the 20th century, of course, politicians had to worry about what individuals thought because they needed their votes. Uh, short-termism, look, what we're suffering from a hangover of what I call arrested development. Britain uh, need not have evolved into the kind of society that it is where we're guaranteed... Millions of people literally living in poverty and so on. Um, This is the product of a social evolution going back three or four hundred years, which predetermined the character of our our so-called democracy. Uh, So I'm not impressed when politicians tell me that they're obliged to take measures on on a short-term basis because actually... People are not stupid. People are decent. People are sensible. And if there were statesmen around willing to explain the facts rather than deceiving them for the sake of a quiet life, I believe the British people would respond constructively. In fact, we know they would because right at the beginning of the 20th century, that's exactly what happened. I've sat in uh, the offices of members of parliament over the last 20 years and uh, they've been scared as hell about the kind of reforms that are needed uh, because they fear that if they explain those reforms to homeowners, for example, Middle England, as they call it, uh, they would somehow lose support. And yet there were people like Lloyd George and Winston Churchill back at the beginning of the 20th century who explained 
the economics of long-term stability, and uh, there was an enormous uh, populist support for what they were recommending. In fact, the Liberal Party uh, achieved a mandate for the reforms that are needed. True enough, at that time, uh, home ownership was about 10%, whereas today it's uh, near around 70%. Uh, but what does that mean? It merely means that the way politicians have to explain the economics of boom-bust and what needs to be done to stabilize the economy on a long-term basis has to be revised. Uh, it's not a question of just how do I protect the capital gains I've achieved uh, in my property over the last five or ten years. Now politicians should explain that actually it's, it's also the value of your uh, investments in the pension fund, your uh, prospects of keeping a, a decently paid job over the medium or long term that's at stake and has to be weighed in the balance. Well, as it happens today, if politicians started saying those things, people would be more receptive because suddenly they're seeing this wealth that they thought they'd accumulated going down. They're seeing jobs uh, disappearing. And so now, now probably is the time when politicians should step forward and start explaining in a more mature way what it would take to actually deliver the stability that Gordon Brown has promised us over the past 10 years. There seem to be very few politicians at the moment who actually understand what is going on, with the possible exception of Vince Cable. Um, do you see any others who get it? No, none. Uh, they don't understand. Um, they're schooled into uh, seeing the world in a particular way that was calculated. Again, it's a historical phenomenon. It's very difficult to break out of that way of seeing the world, the neoclassical economic uh, concept of how the economy works. What's interesting about the Liberals is that traditionally they have had in their uh, policies the kind of insights that would enable them to see the sense of the sorts of changes that are necessary. Vince Cable uh, has inherited that tradition and so sure enough um, you occasionally get sensible statements from the Liberals although frankly speaking uh, on the whole they're a letdown as well. <laughs> and uh, now I happen to believe in cycles and you've identified this uh, 18 year cycle 14 years up and 4 years down but a lot of people would dismiss cycles as you know, supernatural mumbo-jumbo. Defend that accusation. Well, uh, if you're relying just on statistics, then it's fair to say that uh, you can manipulate them to come up with the kind of answers that you want. And if you want a pattern, then if you select the data carefully, you can come up with any pattern uh, under the sun. The truth is that there are patterns even in nature, we know that there are cycles uh, uh, within, the, within the natural system, and uh, it would certainly be surprising if there weren't patterns to human behavior. The, um, a man called Simon Kuznets uh, examined exhaustively the historical data on things like commodity prices and so on, and uh, his results were authoritative. He said, look, I, I can't explain why, but there is this pattern of something like 20 year in the trends in commodity prices and all basically the rest of it. Uh, th that seems to be a, a rigorously uh, provable phenomenon. Uh, he wasn't trying to prove any theory. He didn't have an axe to grind. He just looked at all the massive data and uh, came up with a pattern of something like 20-year trends, which he said he couldn't explain. Now, the fact that he couldn't explain it uh, uh, implied that he wasn't trying to use the data for some uh, self-serving purpose. Uh, but it's not good enough just to have data that seems to follow patterns. One, one needs to understand why those patterns are there mm -hmm. in order to offer a scientific, um, scientifically rigorous uh, uh, defense of 
uh, what, what's actually happening in this case in the markets. Uh, well, uh, the fact is that there are other patterns, uh, cycles from very for, uh, short four-year patterns all the way up to 54-year patterns, uh, and one can explain most of them. The four-year one seems to fit the, the political cycle in this country. Governments manipulate the economy insofar as they can um, just to achieve uh, re-election. So now you can account for those four-year so-called cycles. But within all that uh, mass of data, there, there is this uh, regularity of 18-year activity, which is, is valid because, first of all, I didn't originate the 18-year the, the cycle uh, in business activity. Uh, it actually came out of America in the 1930s, uh, the first one to identify that pattern with land values was a man called Homer Hoyt, who did an exhaustive study of land values in Chicago over 100, 100 years, and the data proved beyond doubt that the, the, the trends of up and down followed this 18-year pattern. Uh, uh, one other uh, person reaffirmed his data on a wider basis and related it to stock markets. Um, so I, when I stumbled on this data, uh, I, my interest was in property markets. Uh, I went and I was fortunate to actually meet Homer Hoyt. By then he was very old. He was living in an apartment uh, in, in Washington, D.C., and I was, told him I was researching my first book, The Power in the Land, and uh, wanted to discuss these 18-year cycles with him. Now he said, look, those cycles no longer apply. Oh, says I, uh, that's curious because, uh, as far as I could see, they were still operating beyond the 1930s when he finished his work. The interesting thing about Homer Hoyt at the time was that he was now a classic land speculator. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, he uh, actually opened up his archives and showed me how he had operated. In fact, he drove me around uh, the uh, fringes of Washington and showed me the large tracts of land which he now owned, vacant land which he had bought up, uh, was keeping idle, and was going to make a capital gain when he decided he wanted to sell it. His son, he explained, flew him down the Florida coast so that they could, from the air, spot the likely sites that on, on, along the coast that he could buy up and hold uh, for speculative purposes. So uh, I, I was very grateful to Homer Hoyt for uh, being generous in showing me his archive and even signing a copy of his book uh, on Chicago land values for me. But I had to treat with caution his claim that the 18-year cycle no longer operated because he now had a vested interest mm -hmm. In, in not affirming uh, the cycle because um, once you can see the pattern, you can see that there is a way to stop it. And why should he want to encourage anyone to stop that pattern when he was deriving his fortune from land speculation? But anyway, uh, having heard him say that the cycles uh, on uh, property values no longer operated, I, I decided to dig deeper. So I examined the data in Japan culturally very different from Chicago and the United States. I looked at Australia, a vast continent with very few people, so you couldn't say that uh, the trends there were driven by uh, high-density population. It was a land-rich continent. And then I looked at the UK, very old country, and wherever I looked, there was that pattern of 14-year property cycles within the 18-year business cycle. So it was a cross-culturally uh, confirmed phenomenon at different times in different centuries, and as it happens now, uh, we can go back further than the 200 years that I studied. Uh, we can look at Norway, uh, the Dutch Republic, uh, and sure enough, there are those 18-year patterns. So. You may want to be skeptical, but uh, frankly, uh, the proof is in the pudding. A, a good theory has to uh, offer robust forecasts. Mm -hmm. In 1997, I was able to specify to the quarter 
when a, the housing market in the UK would end, and I was right, and that cannot be based on accident. Did you, if you don't mind me asking, did you buy and sell property in that time? Did you use the cycle to your advantage? No, I didn't. Uh, my interest was um, in deepening our knowledge of how society works. Uh, and so making money was not something that uh, interested me. But I was fully aware of the potential. I could have made a lot of money. There are builders who believe in your cycle. I think the Barclay Homes Group believe in your cycle, and they sold down a lot of property and minimised their debt in 2005 to six. Well, uh, and uh, good for them for having uh, access to the knowledge that's there and available to anybody. A house I sold in 1974 for about £60,000 is on the market today for three quarters of a million pound. Uh, now, <laughs> uh, had I kept that house then and rented it out, uh, I, I could have been on my way to being a millionaire just on the basis of one property. Well, uh, back in 83, when I wrote The Power in the Land, I knew that that was the way to get rich. But no, that was not my business. I, I was happy to leave it to Homer Hoyt. <laughs> now, if we're told that a generate, they may, when you talk about a generation, that's a kind of a 30, maybe a 35-year period. Your 18-year cycle would give you, it's half a generation, effectively. I mean, why do you think this cycle lasts 18 years? Because it takes 14 years to forget, or...? No, it's n no. If it was just down to some psychological explanation, then you wouldn't have this regularity, and it wouldn't be happening in Japan, where the culture is so different from uh, the Anglo-American culture. Uh, you wouldn't be having it in a land-rich country like Australia, or a dense one, densely populated one like um, uh, Holland. So it's not down to random events like some people would rather explain it as, or explain the boom-busts uh, in terms of, like psychology, the madness of the crowd. I was thinking more, not so much psychology, it just takes, it, it takes 14 years to forget, yes, but also it takes, you know, by, th by the time 14 years have passed, there's a whole new generation yeah. of home buyers in there. Yeah, but the, the, re the precision with which the property market plays itself out is such that it can't be just down to people forgetting. And so, in 1983, in, in The Power in the Land, I was not able to offer a rigorous explanation. I admitted that, uh, just that the data was there and uh, th there was every reason to assume that history would repeat itself. But in Boom Bust, uh, I claim to have offered a... Um, scientifically rigorous explanation for the periodicity of the property market. It seems to be connected with the fact that the long-run rate of interest is 5%, which appears to be related to uh, the, the multiples of annual rents that people are willing to buy at, say, auctions when they're bidding for property, which turns out to be 14 years of uh, annual rents, uh, which seems to be related to the interest rate. And sure enough, uh, at the end of the 19th century, uh, the people who were administering the mortgage markets in this country, the regulators of that time, we're recording the fact that uh, at 5%, uh, the property market seemed to work on the basis of four, multiples of 14 years annual income as being the way to capitalize the value of a property. And uh, so as I figured it out, at the beginning of a new cycle, people would move in, start building, buying, taking out loans, uh, and uh, it would take 14 years to end that cycle of activity, at the end of which we know because of the unique characteristics of the land market, land price would have been driven to astronomical heights, which then creates the propensity to speculate. That speculative activity towards the end of the 14 years foredooms the economy because, see, logically, why at the end of 14 years don't you just start another smooth 14-year period of house building and buying without having a disruption? There has to be something that causes 
terminates that activity in a violent way, which we now see is happening currently and which happens at the end of every cycle. What is it about, what's intrinsic in the market economy that causes this violence? And it's the land speculation. This brings me back to Homer Hoyt. People buy up land that they don't actually need, which other people want to develop, but which they hold on to because uh, they know that in the long term the capital gains will be even greater. But by denying people the land that they need to live on and work on, uh, they, they impose enormous costs. First of all, they encourage others to copy them, to speculate. That helps to drive up property prices. Secondly, it imposes... Uh, infrastructure costs on the community. If you have leapfrogging development because communities are forced to develop housing estates beyond, well beyond the, the urban fringe, they have to leapfrog those sites that have been tied up by the speculators. That imposes extra costs of transportation and the, uh, installing the utilities which begins to reduce the returns that you get on that capital investment it imposes extra costs on household budgets, longer-term commutes, higher costs of living that are avoidable and wholly unnecessary. All these things taken together means that uh, there is a deterioration in the uh, productivity of the economy, uh, a, ex uh, a distortion in the pattern of investments, now it's not uh, investing in value-adding activities, it's just investing in what you hope will yield high capital gains, taking money from other people essentially, not adding to the wealth of the nation. And when you add all these things together, you, you've created a lopsided economy that's going, that can only be uh, corrected with a cathartic bust, which is what happens, because at some point people stop buying uh, stop consuming, stop investing, and that's when the whole pack of cards crumbles. Are you um, a believer in the uh, Austrian School of Economics? Which you define as? <laughs> I think it was von Mises and also Murray Rothbard said the inevitable bust that follows the boom. Yeah, the libertarian, yes. uh, free market, unrestrained... Uh, uh, I don't fit into any particular doctrine uh, because... Uh, these are all simplistic. The libertarians, the Murray Rothbards, uh, are defending an indefensible position. Uh, they want secure private property rights, and yet, as we've just seen in the uh, City of London, uh, when the going gets tough, it's ve these very people who run to government and ask for protection under the state, uh, and uh, the libertarians uh, are no different from other so-called free market uh, schools of thought in uh, wanting security when their vital interests are at stake. Uh, the problem is this. The, for historical reasons, the market economy has been represented in a, in a way that's very perverse to suit particular schools of thought so that, yes, there are the, the people who wanted to privatize uh, and then the offshoot of them is the Chicago School and uh, the von Mises, uh, uh, Ayn Rand, uh, justification for private property rights and so on. And then you had the Marxist, the socialist schools, who wanted to adopt a, a totally opposed view. But the outcome of this ideological warfare going back over a couple of centuries is that the reality of how the markets really work and how they ought to work normatively has been um, scrambled in, in this fight to achieve doctrinal supremacy. So that's where uh, we have a lot of confusion and why politicians are not able to fathom out where the boundaries are between the private sector and the public sector, between private property rights and public property rights between what is yours and what is ours. So, frankly, we now have to have a completely new debate on the, these very issues. And the, the issues have not been settled, and we won't find the answers either in the uh, 
von Mises' uh, teachings or in the Marxist teachings. In fact, we now have to develop an entirely fresh approach to philosophy on issues like the property market, the nature of capitalism, exactly what is a market, uh, and that debate should begin now. After all, the, the, the boundaries have been utterly uh, eviscerated, emasculated by the Fed in the United States, the Bank of England here, uh, Gordon Brown himself, the man who uh, uh, was defending um, banks and uh, private property has now stuck the uh, British taxpayer with billions uh, uh, taking the risks that were created in the markets, uh, taking them into the public sector. This is all very confusing for people, and the only way we're going to uh, resolve these issues is by initiating a new debate, and that really does mean new. Now, who, who, who's supposed to uh, lead that debate? The discredited people who've uh, got us into this mess? I don't think so. Uh, so the Renegade Economist is a website where we are beginning to offer uh, new thoughts on how to develop a fresh understanding of basic issues like well, what is, how do you actually define the market? What is capitalism? People have taken this for granted and yet uh, it's because their concepts of these words uh, have not been consistent with reality that we keep getting uh, the visions of how things ought to be done, the politics that have been administered on our behalf, crashing into the buffers of reality, which is, is patently absurd. It's, it's uh, uh, a pathological system we have, which can only be deconstructed by fresh thinking, and we're hoping on the Renegade Economist website to in, and our conferences, which begin in January, to help people to start thinking for themselves uh, so that when they write to their members of parliament or uh, when they even listen to the politicians, they can decode uh, the, the spin and uh, identify the reality. You've kind of half answered this question already, but um, you wrote to Gordon Brown and he ignored your ad advice, so no... Um, counter-cyclical preparation was made. Um, what what counter-cyclical um, preparations could have been made and what can be done now? Well, um, it, it could have been argued by Gordon Brown that in the good times he couldn't actually take the action that I was recommending. Uh, but that would have been fine if he had said, let's wait for the system to break down, and having broken down, that will be the opportune time to start reconstructing it. If, if a politician had said that to me, I would have said, okay, providing you explain that to the people so that they can accept it, that it's a choice that they choose to make in a democracy, fine, let's wait for the breakdown that's going to ha happen on the dates appointed uh, in, the, in the books that I've written, and then let's start working on it. Well... We've now got the breakdown, and sure enough, we have commentators like those in the Financial Times. Uh, Martin Wolf, uh, only a few days ago, actually identified what now needs to be done in the property market, a reform of taxation. Sir Samuel Britton, writing over the last several years in the Financial Times, has repeated that what we need is a change in the structure of incentives in the property market. Actually, it goes beyond just the incentives in the property market. What we need is a wholesale change in the structure of public finance, which again brings us to the problem of, well, what are the legitimate boundaries between private finance and public finance? How do we define them? Current uh, concepts like progressive taxes are j just add to confusion and actually build in the instability that people like Gordon Brown say they want to resolve. We need to change the structure of incentives by encouraging people who add value to the wealth of the nation and discouraging those activities that actually uh, defeat or are barriers to the accumulation of wealth. Speculating in land, privatizing the rental income of land is a utterly negative activity. It doesn't add value. It doesn't enrich people. It merely redistributes income between people. 
So that is not a good capitalist or market-based uh, uh, way of raising revenue to fund public services. So we, uh, speculating in land needs to be discouraged, and the only way to do that is to start to draw the public's income from the rents of land, complementing... Sorry, Fred. Is that not the same as speculating in anything? No, it's not. No. Uh, uh, some forms of speculation are entirely legitimate. If there is a shortage of shoes because China's not producing enough of them, mm -hmm. uh, well, then a speculator will actually induce an increase in the output of shoes uh, by identifying that as a problem, a blockage in the market. So if you speculate in shoes, a, a manufacturer in China is going to say, well, obviously prices are going up, uh, let's increase the, uh, the supply of shoes, and that will then bring the price of shoes down. So I have no problem with... with speculation as such but when you speculate in land you're speculating with something unique namely you can't make more of it so if you um, buy up land and isolate it quarantine it withhold it nobody can then say oh well let's send a load of acres to london because prices of rents are going up so fast that obviously there's money to be made in that market because you can't actually transport land to london uh, and so you end up distorting the market in the way that I described earlier. So this is the one form of speculation that is antisocial, whereas any other form of speculation where the products that you're speculating in can be increased, uh, the speculation helps to identify blockages and therefore encourages a more efficient market. Whereas when you speculate in land, you're actually depriving other people and there is no way to overcome, other than with a catastrophe, uh, the activity that you set in train. So, the, so what society has to do is to prevent that form of speculation. But it, and it would do so by the simple practice of charging people for the use of land, whereas today we basically don't. And compensating uh, for that new strategy for raising revenue, we would reduce taxes on people's wages and their, the profits they make from capital accumulation, capital formation. So that the starting point is not a smaller public uh, budget to meet current uh, expenditures. It is a restructuring of uh, the way society raises its revenue. If we did would that not cause a huge initial sell-off in land? Well, uh, it would. <laughs> if people, if the politicians had done their job properly and explained what they intended to do, uh, if the uh, message was, if you hold land, you will pay its market value to the community in return for the benefits that you will be receiving from holding that land, then uh, those who wish to sell it off because they don't want to hold the land and have the liability of paying for it, we'll be transferring it to people who will be saying, but we need this land mm -hmm. to build houses on, so, you know, bring it on. Get rid of your land, because that's exactly what we want you to do. Instead of hoarding the land, some building companies hoard land for six and eight and more years. Uh, well, there are other small builders who will be able to stick houses up on that land, but they can't get it. On the contrary, they find that when they go to the land market, Prices have been driven up precisely because the supply has been reduced by the land hoarders. So uh, this, the, the cathartic effect of the announcement of this restructuring is that, yes, some land would definitely come onto the market, but it would be acquired by people who want to use it and who are willing to pay for holding it. Would you change the planning laws? If land is zoned as uh, either greenfield or... Uh, as agricultural-only land, then, then if society deems that to be the appropriate way that we use the land, then the planning constraints remain, which therefore limits the market value of that land, and therefore the taxable liability is commensurately lower. Uh, yes, we would keep the uh, planning laws, or at least I would personally recommend that we keep the planning system in place, certainly to start with, but, you see, the planning system was only brought into play precisely because the market malfunctioned. Now, if the, the closer we move to a more efficient market, 
where people's aspirations were being met by themselves because there were no longer the major barriers in the way of housing, employment, decent community environments, neighborhoods, and so on, then the need for planning uh, controls diminishes. So in the fullness of time, actually, as society becomes healthier, wealthier, and wiser, so you need fewer social constraints because people working together in holistic communities are actually making the sensible decisions uh, that, that fulfills their needs. So we start with retaining the planning laws, which therefore tells you what the limits are to the taxable capacity of your land. Uh, but uh, society in the fullness of time, I believe, would start to dismantle those planning constraints as people became engaged in the running of their communities. I, I just think so many um, homeowners and landowners and influential people would find that idea unpalatable. Well, uh, they may do. Uh, are those the people whose property values are crashing now? Uh, <laughs> these are the people who are going to defend the present system. Look, this is where it becomes important to explain the philosophy of this f fiscal reform. And this process hasn't begun yet, and it's actually our obligation to begin that uh, debate. Have you spoken uh, to George Osborne? Uh, no, I haven't. Let me, let me explain, if okay. I may, uh, the importance of the point that you're making. What you're saying is that people who have these nice cottages in small villages don't want additional housing. Uh, they're the uh, NIMBYs, and they wouldn't like what I'm talking mm. about, yeah? And, of course, that's the reality. Well, they are the people living in an unreal world. They're the inheritors of the injustices of the past, and this all has to be explained to them. Uh, and it has to be explained in these terms, in terms that make sense of changing the structure of taxation, of public finance. These people get away with their nimbiest uh, strategies because they're not told the facts of life. The facts of life are these, for example, you want to preserve the congenial environment of your thatched roofed communities uh, in greenbelt land, uh, but you don't want to pay the costs of enjoying that environment because actually the, the value of the benefits you're receiving is measured by the value of your land. That value was not created by you. If you wish to retain that living environment, that, that's fine if you're paying for that benefit, which you're not doing now. You want to exclude people but you don't want to pay the price of retaining that exclusive lifestyle. And that is not fair, because if you're not paying the price of that lifestyle, somebody else is. For instance, the people who can't get homes, who would like your village extended a bit, um, who are excluded because you won't pay the real value of the land that you are occupying. Now, this is a tough message to present to people, but it's the reality. Uh, these are the people who say they are concerned about their children's future, but they are creating the barriers to their children's future by retaining a tax regime that locks the next generation out of the housing market or makes it impossible for them to get into the housing market unless they lock away their lives in 30 or more years' worth of mortgage payments. It's this kind of uh, cathartic debate that somebody needs to initiate, and that's why it needs the statesmen of the kind that we had in Winston Churchill to begin talking tough, telling people how it really is. And this is the time when they could start to do that because suddenly the illusions we had about our property values, say, uh, are beginning to evaporate. Suddenly what we got so apparently easily can be taken away from us. Well, how do we now rebase our system so that if we've accumulated wealth over a working lifetime, it isn't snatched away from us in the next crash? That's what we need to know, and I believe that people are sensible enough, wise enough, to accept that actually if there is a better way of laying foundations for the accumulation of security of, in old age and so on and meeting all our needs uh, through a, a more sensible 
system for uh, funding the public services, they would go for it. Because of a, a perceived um, persecution from the media, um, it kind of bred this politician in Tony Blair who never really said anything. He, he spent his whole time kind of, you know, his whole third way. He never said black, he never said white. He always kind of tried to say both. And um, in doing that, he made himself less persecutable than uh, a more overt conviction politician. And we see the same traits in David Cameron and uh, also in Barack Obama, where you never quite know what their policies are. Um, I gather from what you just said, you think, that, and I agree, that the, the, the world or the UK is certainly ready for a, 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 an overt conviction politician. Yes. Um, politicians sell their constituents short. People would respond constructively to honest politicians who who explained the facts in a way that made sense to them. The people that you've been talking about avoid the reality because they just don't want to get down to the detail of how things are, which can be painful, as I've explained. To tell somebody that the value in their home was not actually earned by them, it doesn't really belong to them. They didn't create those increased land values. All they've done is accumulated income that ought to belong to the rest of us, for example. That's a tough thing to start telling people. But if you match it with, look, the reforms that we're proposing actually free you, give you the kind of lifestyles that you say you really want, which enables your children to have even more prosperous lives in the future because they won't be uh, carrying 30-year uh, mortgage burdens on their backs. Uh, once you start to explain that to people, telling them that actually their take-home pay, their disposable incomes would rise under this alternative uh, approach to public financing because the deadweight losses of the present system would evaporate. Uh, the economists can measure the losses that we all sustain by preserving the present tax system. Once that's explained to people, and assuming that they accept it as true, and so it has to be tested, obviously, and as it happens, we know it can, the evidence can be produced, well, then, then uh, people will respond to it. So politicians who were willing to treat people as mature, civilized um, voters would actually benefit from it. And that's, that's the frustrating thing about the Liberal Party. You referred to Vince Cable earlier. The Liberal Party at the present time has the historical insight into the kinds of measures that would deliver the stability that uh, the UK needs, but uh, they lost that understanding over the last decades, and now they're as timid as the rest of them. But if the Liberals really wanted to come out of the wilderness, if they started talking the kind of economics that I've been explaining to you today, uh, I believe that, uh, that the support they would receive would be enormous. Well, I, I agree. I think there's a genuine craving for some honesty, and I think that's why Boris is so popular. Um, I mean, you might not agree with everything he says, but at least he's, him, he's himself and he's not pretending to be something he's not. Well, most of the time he isn't. Yes, but and that was true with Ken Livingstone, yeah. and he, he was a blunt-speaking character. But, uh, but these people don't have a narrative that actually does make sense. Uh, I accept they are well-meaning. Most mm. politicians, even Tony Blair, really wanted to help people. I would accept that. It's just that they were not capable of doing so because once put in a position of authority, they immediately become constrained, institutionalized. So uh, they then have to take their um, cues from what is the approved discourse, the politics mm -hmm. that uh, are acceptable. The machine allows them to say only so much, and uh, so people lose their independence and there are very few renegades like Tony Benn around, for example, mm -hmm. who will speak contrary to what uh, yeah. uh, is, is approved by their leaders. I've got 101 questions I want to ask you, Fred, and we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll just try and rattle through them as quickly as possible. I, I, have, you, I mean, have you made any attempts to talk? I mean, the Conservative Party is going to be the next government. Have you made any attempts to talk to George Osborne or anyone? Any of his uh, lackeys? No, I haven't, uh, but nor have I been keeping what I've been saying secret, yeah. and they're entitled to access that information as fast as they would like. Uh, in the fullness of time... Would you like an introduction? Uh, 
if you're able to give me an introduction, I'd be delighted to meet them. Bear in mind that there are people, even within the Conservative Party, who share my views, who have tried to persuade the, the Conservative Party to go down this route, who have failed. But we've got to keep trying, but, but on a non-party political basis. We, we are willing to help any and every political party, but including, if he's a mate of yours, Mr Cameron. <laughs> I've got a picture on him on, on my mo of me and him at a party on my mobile phone. I don't know if that counts as him <laughs> being a mate of mine. Um, the, uh, I've, uh, let me just ask you, what uh, changes, if any, would you like to see to our monetary system? Now, that's a big question. I don't believe the monetary system is as problematic as some people think. The monetary system uh, plays havoc only because people can manipulate it in order to pursue the capital gains that I've been talking about in the property market. Uh, if those gains were removed, there would be an example where one of our institutions, the money system, would be tamed automatically. It would suddenly become a servant of the people, facilitating trade, rather than an adjunct to the speculative activity that disrupts the economy. So uh, I would be inclined to go very carefully on changing the monetary system because I believe it's one of those natural adjustments that would occur once the fundamental issues have been dealt with. I see. Um, are you of the view that uh, unnaturally low interest rates of the last seven or eight years have encouraged uh, uh, foolhardy speculation? Well, in the sense that low interest rates means higher capital values for land, which therefore encourages people into land speculation, yes, that is the case. Are you a gold bug? Uh, well, uh, I, I am, so it's a loaded question. I accept that uh, people need to defend their positions as uh, well as they can, uh, and therefore uh, if buying gold is the way to conserve some of their wealth, which is going to be wiped out on a massive scale uh, and is being, then good for them. Inflation or deflation? What are we seeing at the moment and what do you see unfolding? Deflation. Uh, although the, um, the uh, central bankers are, are inflating the money supply now on a massive scale, still the capacity for China and India to compensate with uh, products that offset uh, the inflationary impact of increasing the money supply to protect the land speculators of the last 10 years will be powerful enough to uh, ensure some kind of stability. People generally are not as aggressive in trying to defend their living standards. Trade unions uh, uh, were uh, exhausted by their fight with Reagan and Thatcher, and so uh, I'm in inclined to think that it's definitely deflation. So if you were advising um, somebody what to do with their money at the moment to, to best protect their wealth and probably possibly see a little bit of gain as well, where would you tell them to put it? Well, again, it, it, it varies according to the individual and their expectations, their needs. Look, I think that uh, capital values are going to be eroded uh, quite savagely and the turmoil is only for those with strong hearts and uh, money to gamble with. So, frankly, I think the sensible thing is to defend what you've got rather than to try and accumulate. So if that means sticking the money uh, in, in keeping it in cash and just relying on the interest rate protecting you against... Uh, the inflation, in other words, you don't lose capital value even if you don't make anything. That's the sensible thing to do for the next 12 months till we see how things pan out. Are you a believer in the 20-year commodity market cycle? Well, you see, I referred to Simon Kuznets. Yes, uh, you did, yeah. Uh, and, uh, but so uh, the 20-year patterns are, are there. What... Sorry, let me just, that's my mum, I'll turn that off. Yes, commodities go in cycles, but on the back of what? What is the, ultimately the driver of uh, all these, these patterns? 
people need to consume natural resources and so on, but why do they stop at certain points in time? Well, uh, I believe it does come back ultimately to the property market or the land market very specifically being the major driver of uh, most activity that, that is the profiles of the business cycle and, and is the major determinant. And that's why you need to understand Ricardo's law as a Sorry, sorry, she's left me a message now. <laughs> you need to understand Ricardo's law. Uh, David Ricardo is the one who spelt out the theory of rent most cogently. Mm -hmm. And uh, by having a mastery of that theory, uh, so that's why I call it Ricardo's law in one of my books, uh, y you can begin to make sense of what is otherwise a very bewildering uh, mass of data in the markets, including uh, the trends in commodities and the rest. All right. Well, Fred, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for sparing some time with us. The, um, the book is Boom, Bust, House Prices, Banking and the Depression of 2010. It was reprinted earlier this year, am I right? It was, but uh, you ought to look out for my next one, which is called The Renegade Economist, it's an e-book and will be available through our website, um, renegadeeconomist.com, because that will offer my latest reflections on uh, the markets and who we should hold responsible for what's now happening. <laughs> Couldn't be our man Gordon, could it? Uh, the depression of 2010, is it really going to be that bad? I believe it is. And it seems that this is now conventional wisdom. When I... Uh, used the concept in the subtitle of the Boom Bust book in 2005, I was on my own. And, of course, mainstream commentators just disparaged me as a prophet of doom. Uh, but actually, they're now talking about the similarities between now and 1929, 1933. It's actually become conventional wisdom. Uh, is your question, has the Fed and, the, uh, and Gordon Brown's actions of the last few days... Uh, solved the uh, turmoil, are we now on the up? The answer is no. This is the end of phase one. We're at the beginning of phase two of the downturn. And how many phases in a downturn? Please don't say seven. <laughs> but it's certainly going to be a long one, whatever it is. Okay, well, uh, that website, one more time, is therenegadeeconomist.com. Fred Harrison, thank you very much. You're welcome. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Well, if there's one man who believes in cycles, it's Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bob. Hello, Mike. I know you've uh, put a lot of study into Fred Harrison's 18-year property cycle, and uh, I think you would agree he's pretty much nailed it. But he has this time, and I think it's... Maybe the second time he's nailed it. Um, he nailed it back in 1990, 1994 as well. So here we are in 2008, uh, well into a crash, possibly into depression. Um, I haven't heard the podcast yet, but he must be feeling pretty good. Well, I think he is. I mean, he doesn't... Uh he he i think he studies his cycles more as a uh, as an academic i don't think he actually puts the findings of his uh, study into practice i know for example he didn't buy or sell property in the great boom or bust he just observed it yeah you know that's a funny thing but sometimes um you know people who who don't actually play the game are better at coaching um than those that are involved um, but it does seem strange that he hasn't put his money into something that he has a strong conviction about. Um, and, you know, in a way, if he'd made a lot of money trading property, it might make him a stronger advocate for some of the changes that he's, uh, changes in tax law and so forth that he's been, um, you know, arguing for. What, what do you think of those changes in tax law? Do you think, do you think they're a good idea? Well, I, I don't know them in detail. I, I'll be eager to listen to the podcast. But from what I do know, um, they're worth trying. I think some of the changes he's talking about have been implemented in Hong Kong. Um, and um, I think what's intriguing about the changes is by putting more tax on property, 
um, you actually can lower the tax on incomes. That's the theory, anyway. Yes. And you know that that to me sounds a very good thing. I mean, um, I think it's quite nice living in a country which does have a lower tax rate. The, it doesn't help me a lot as an American, but the tax rate here is a maximum of sixteen percent on income. That's a lovely notion. It is. Uh, of course, to get there, you need you need basically to be living in a culture where there aren't a lot of people who believe in dependency. Now, as you know, the Chinese, for reasons of face, um, don't like to go on welfare. It's very bad, and their families don't like to see them on welfare. Where there are loads of people in countries like the U.S. and U.K. who you know, it's not only become a personal choice, but it's become a family tradition. So um, <laughs> somehow you have to change that. I come from a long line this. of dependence. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really interesting that the maybe the worst time in the property fall, it's just upon us now. I mean, it's been pretty bad for a couple of months, but with this financial crisis and the impact it's going to have on lending globally, um, it could be that London, in particular, is uh, in for a very hard time. I, I read an anecdotal report about a flat in Chelsea that a year ago could have let for 1200 a week. Uh, they're now struggling to let at £450 a week. <laughs> Ouch, that's very bad. I mean, that's anecdotal, but nevertheless... When you when you say when you start with a market that's overvalued, where you know yields are you know just too low, um, where you know the prices have to fall thirty percent to bring the yields up, and then on top of that, you add in the notion that rents are falling. I mean, the you know if rents are going to fall like that, then a fifty percent drop in London property is very easy to contemplate, and we could see something much worse than that. Well, I'm I'm looking around me in Wandsworth, the you know, and I'm I'm always singing the praises of Wandsworth. It's a nice area. It's got a good council, and it's nice and green and leafy, and uh, you know, big family houses. Some of them, you know, million pound plus houses. They are not selling, and now they're, the for sale signs are being replaced by to let boards, and um, people are unrealistic about uh, what they're worth. Well, you know, this is the thing: is you know, as nice as Wandsworth may be. If the investment bankers um, lose their big bonuses, uh, a lot of those homes in Chelsea are going to be cheaper to rent and cheaper to buy. So people who are happy now living in Wandsworth may decide that if they have a million dollars or half a million dollars to spend and they can get something nice in Chelsea, why not move to Chelsea and, you know, leave Wandsworth to somebody else? So. You know, the, the whole market might be dragged down by the, you know, the high end. Um, I was thinking about my son. He's seven years old, and I was kind of trying to equate his life to Fred Harrison's 18-year property cycle. And uh, if the 18-year property cycle works out, um, we can expect the next peak around about 2025, which is when my son will be 25, and in, at that kind of age where you start buying your first flat. So I, I hope I can impress upon him uh, the the need to wait another three or four years before he dives in and buys at the top of the market. Well, you know, I think that that's something to think about. But, you know, another thing is that, you know, we have cycles of cycles. So, you know, not only have we seen the top of an 18-year cycle, but I think we've seen the top of a much longer cycle as well. So I, I really wonder if the next cyclical uh, peak is going to be anything like as dramatic as the one we've just lived through. Mm -hmm. I, th I think a lot of the demographic uh, and tax issues that we're facing uh, suggest that, you know, we're not going to see anything like the three times move that we saw during the last cycle. Uh, you know, it might be quite a lot less than that. Um, so maybe your son will be more at risk um, the cycle after that. Well, if uh, Fred Harrison's movement's successful and he gets the uh, tax reforms that he's looking for, perhaps uh, this uh, cycle will be eliminated. <laughs> That'll be the day. I mean, I hope we both live to see that. <laughs> it would be interesting. I mean, there are other countries like, uh, I think Australia tried it for a while, and um, from what I've read about his comments, 
you know, he, he deemed that to be quite a success. So, uh, you know, let's hope he gets some traction on this and, and, uh, we do have an opportunity to witness a live experiment. He, he showed me uh, in his office some of the videos that he's been working on and uh, that, that, that they're going to be putting up on the web um, shortly. And one of them showed, I think there was the, the 12 best uh, performing economies since World War Two mm-hmm. all had tax laws, land tax laws that kind of correspond to the laws that uh, he's in favour of. And they were um, Botswana, which is the only country in Africa that... that uh, that does it china hong kong japan uh, taiwan various others the names of which i've forgotten but the the fact that they were the 12 best uh, performing global economies and they all had this tax law um was uh, no coincidence well i'm wondering if there might be a correlation between the willingness to entertain that tax law and some good fundamentals which uh you, you know i so we might have a a little bit of a false correlation there. Um, mm-hmm. Countries that have good fundamentals can entertain the tax law um, rather than the tax law creates the good fundamentals. So I think one yeah. has to be a little bit careful about that. But that's well worth studying. I mean, it would be really interesting to see those um, videos. And I hope Fred makes it out here to Hong Kong, too. So I think he, there was some talk about him coming out here. It would be nice to meet him in person. All right. Well, Mike, um, good stuff. We're going to get you back on the show in a few days and do another uh, program with you and Mike Shedlock. Uh, the last one was very popular. Um, but in the meantime, uh, why don't you give out the website address? Yeah, I mean, people should come along and have a look at our new uh, front page. Um, and if they come in through, uh, through the link I'm going to give you, they can see it. It's www.globaledgeinvestors.com. And then don't forget to Flip, flip over to the chat board and see. It's been very active recently. Have a look at what's going on there, please. Okay. Well, good stuff, uh, Michael Hampton. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dominic. Speak to you soon. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Cam. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.